0: You have your Bibles with you. Find your way to the Gospel of Mark and the chapter six this morning. Gospel of Mark, <clears throat> chapter six. I would like to say um, welcome back to Stephen and Courtney Myers. Uh, are they still in the room back here somewhere? They are. Oh, there you there's Stephen right there. T- look at him so you know who he is. Okay. They've been on some rigorous missionary training stuff. They were two weeks they had to camp out in the woods on the on the east Coast, I guess sort of and, um, and with no with no cell phone contact. Can you imagine that? <laughs> and uh, But they were learning to uh, do that kind of mission work that some some missionaries have to do in those rugged places where they plan to go eventually. So keep them in prayer. they're going to be around here for uh, a couple of months till um Till uh, August, and then they'll be heading back again, so we'll see them. We'll, we'll actually take time to interview them up here stage eventually here before they take off. They're expecting a number three baby coming up, too, in the first part of August, so keep them in prayer. I think you'll find that in the prayer list this morning, too. And then uh, we appreciate our missionaries. I, I, think, I think tomorrow, during the picnic out at the Marshalls, that's a big event every year, um, we will probably see our missionary Mary Amesbury who is back from um, Midwest for a brief time with her family but sent from our church originally. She's not here today but we'll probably see her there and we'll be able to communicate with her because she had some other churches she had to report to as well but this is kind of like her original home church here so look for Mary and welcome her too and that's good. Now one more, one more little advertisement here I don't call this an advertisement but uh, not selling anything We would like you, if you are kind of new to the church and you've never been to our house and um, we'd like to get to know you, it doesn't matter how long you've been at the church, if you've never been at our house, we'd like to get to know the newer folks. Just come on over to our house on Friday night. It's in the bulletin. It is uh, what we call a pastor's coffee. Our house is like three blocks that direction. You can walk there in seven minutes if you go through the woods. It takes eight minutes if you go by road. but anyway, it's, um, it's there. We'd like to have you come. Our mailbox has our name on it. It's a big wooden mailbox and so forth. But uh, 7 o'clock on Friday night, time of fellowship. Um, I think Chris and Ruth will be there also, Pastor Chris. So uh, just time of fellowship. We'll, we'll provide everything. You just come, and uh, you don't have to buy anything. There's nothing to buy. We'll give you food, and we'll give you all kinds of uh, good things to drink, too. So that'll be f- this Friday night, Pastor's Coffee. At Nancy and I at our house here. Well, we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Mark. I'm so enjoying um, preaching through this passage of uh, the text of this book of the Bible. Mark is a book that was written, you might say, kind of like a newspaper. It was. It's fast-paced. It's a shorter book of the New Testament Gospels, but probably was actually the first one to be written. And Mark largely borrows from um, Peter who was part of his life there too. <clears throat> it's Jesus' final year of ministry where we find ourselves today in chapter 6. And his ministry has been in Galilee to this, to this point here. Um, he'd been in Capernaum which is on the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee and that's where Peter lived and you can go there if you visit Israel, been there a couple of times. And he's had ministry there, and he had a very positive ministry for the most part. In Capernaum, people were healed, people were were saved, and thousands of people gathered around him until it was like all four sides of him were packed with people whenever he would show up. And he'd have to be on the beach in order to get the crowd so he could even speak to them, no longer in houses because people were coming. Some of them were curious, some of them were just seekers Some of them came to discredit him, but there were lots of people around Jesus during that time. That's where we have been up till now. Last week, we were there. He had a positive ministry over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, too, in Gadara, where the demoniac was, and that man had the demon cast out. His life was totally changed, and he wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus told him, you become the first Gentile missionary to Gentile people, and he sent him on that way. That was a positive thing also, and the pigs all drowned in that story too. But today we come now to Mark chapter 6, and it's just a few verses, six verses. So if you have your Bible, you might want to just along, watch along with me as I read for you. I'm going to ask you to stand as we read the Word of God too. <clears throat> I'll read these few verses, and then we'll continue. This story is about here, the city of Nazareth, the, the book of um, Luke also, con- or excuse me, Matthew also contains this story, only two gospels do, but clearly Mark has the longer version, more complete version. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles of these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives in his own household. And he could do no miracles there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around the villages teaching. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that as we look at this, you, you might speak to us through your Holy Spirit, help us to understand and apply these wonderful words, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You be seated. Like I said, it had been a positive ministry up to this point, but today we're going to find it's not so positive here. Not so positive. It's kind of a negative time, really, here that Jesus now encounters in this really kind of the last parts of his ministry in Galilee. You might know Nazareth. I had a chance to go there last time we were in Israel and it was very interesting. Our bus driver was from Nazareth and uh, so our bus went up to Nazareth and we had got a chance to look around and some of the pictures on the back of your salt starter are from that time. Nazareth is on a hilltop, and it's kind of an interesting place, and so to kind of set the stage for where we're going to be this morning, let me see if I can kind of help you with your understanding of what Nazareth really was in that time, the time of Christ. It was about 35 miles uh, southwest of Capernaum, just west of the Sea of Galilee, about halfway from the Sea of Galilee to the coast. And it was uh, built on a hilltop, this village. Christ, we know, was called Jesus of Nazareth somewhere around 17 times in the Gospel. So the fact that he came from here is very clear in all of the New Testament we know of, of course, the story of his birth. They were from Nazareth. They went to Bethlehem where Jesus was born, and then they came back to Nazareth at some, pl- at some point. Nazareth is really uh, on a hill, like the little picture in the back of uh, your no, Salt. It's, uh, it's up on the hill, and I don't know, it's probably uh, four or 500 feet tall or, or taller. It's a good-sized hill, and you have to drive up to it in kind of a windy road as you go up to it, kind of like you do when you go up to Mount Rainier there. And it has believed to have been a city there since 2200 B.C. Now, that's an old city. That would mean it's over 4,000 years old today. There's evidence of that. It was here where Mary lived, and um, we know that she had an angel appear to her, and it was probably in the area where there's a well there, and so that's often spoken. If you go there, you can visit that place. They, They have identified probably where it was. In fact, in 2009, archaeologists have discovered in the digs around Nazareth a first century home that they actually believe may be the home where Mary and Joseph lived. So very interesting. They do a lot of work like that, and as time goes on more and more is revealed from history. But Jesus grew up there. He grew up there in his father's carpenter shop. His father was a carpenter, and so Jesus was too of some kind of a craftsman we know it may have been more than just carpentry work. It may have been stonework, some believe. And he spent time there with the rest of the family. There were more than just Jesus and the family and his parents. there were we find out here there were uh, four brothers and they're all named and James is one of them and James became later a pastor in Jerusalem after the resurrection. Plus sisters in the plural and so that means that there were at least two sisters. So there was at least seven children including Jesus and maybe more, maybe up to ten, we don't know. So it was a normal sized family in those days. He spent time with his brothers and sisters obviously and parents and Ironically, uh, in archaeological digs, they've discovered something that has some kind of an idea of how many people lived there at the time. So around the time Jesus was there, they believe around 400 people lived in Nazareth. So it wasn't a big village. It wasn't a big village at all. But it was a normal-sized village for that area. And today, the population is around 76,000. So it's grown (laughs) just a little bit since then. In fact, when you go to Nazareth, it's the Arabic capital of um, northern Israel. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Arabic people there. There's Muslims there, but there are also Christians, and there's actually also churches there, and of course historic sites that are there too. But um, but when Jesus got to Ma- Nazareth this time, we're going to find that he was, he was unwelcome. And as we look at this passage of scripture today, you'll find that there's, there's really two lessons that we learned, two lessons that we learned this morning from all of this. And one is um, really about the results of unbelief. It brings you to offending Christ, you might say, being offended at Christ. And so unbelief is a key word in this whole text. That's what it's about. It's about unbelief in Nazareth. So let's just kind of walk our way through the text this morning as we look at it and think about this and apply it to our lives because there might be some issues of unbelief in your life or someone you know, someone you love, someone you work with. Jesus faced it also. So it says in verse 1 that he went away from there, that would have been from Capernaum where he had been earlier, about 35 miles away. Successful ministry there, people were healed, thousands of people came around him, and he came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. This place called the hometown in the English is is a Greek word that can mean fatherland or native town, that kind of idea where he had been raised, and he was Jesus of Nazareth, we know there too. So it was a small village, and according to ancient time, like I said, 400 people lived there, so pretty much everybody would know Jesus. I was born and raised in a town of 1300 in eastern Washington. I thought it was a small town. Nazareth was much smaller, but pretty much most people knew who our family was and who I was as I grew up. Peter, James, and John, as you recall, had come together as a group last time we looked, and there was one definite article for the three names, which means now Jesus, as he, as he spoke to them, they kind of became the inner circle in chapter 5, at the end of, end of chapter 5, and we see them often from here on out. Peter, James, and John were with him in Capernaum, but now it does say as he went up here, his disciples followed him. And since it doesn't list their names and the way the rest of the context goes here, it appears that all 12 of them went with him up to Nazareth there. Why would he take his 12 disciples with him up to Nazareth? Well, I believe that this was a training time for them, clearly as a training time all throughout these earlier chapters of the Gospel of Mark. He's training the Twelve. The Training of the Twelve, by the way, is a wonderful book. If you ever want to read a good book about how the Twelve came to what they ended up doing, read The Training of the Twelve. I think it's by F.F. Bruce. It's a good book. It's one of the better books I remembered reading in seminary. But it was a training ground for them and they were going to come and they were going to learn but they didn't know what was going on. They were just following him. Remember that even the disciples really didn't clearly, they didn't clearly identify Jesus as Messiah or, or the Christ yet although they said they would follow him and this and that and the other. The only people in the gospel of, of Mark that really clearly identified Jesus as the Messiah were demons up until the end of the book. So there was a lot of training to do here. And he would send them out later. Have you ever visited the place you grew up in? Um, If you grew up in Los Angeles, not many people are going to know you there. But if you grew up in Warden, Washington, everybody knows you. Our school had the largest senior class in all of its history the year that Nancy and I graduated. We had a little over 30 people in it. It was massive, you know. (laughs) We knew everybody right down through grade school. We still do. We still know lots of people there. Obviously, things have changed in 50 years, but, but we knew a lot of people there. I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago that I had taken a trip to my hometown. We had gone there for a funeral uh, a couple of weeks ago, and there was a little bit of a deja vu time. We went to the church that I had been raised in, and the whole works, and uh, came back, and I walked into church, and you know, I knew most of the people there after 50 years. Even though many had died and more came, they were all kind of related to them. So you feel a little funny going in. I didn't know the pastor. I was hoping to meet him and talk with him about theology and so forth, but he wasn't feeling well, so he left fairly quickly after the service, and I missed uh, getting a chance to talk with him. But going to your own home village is, is really an emotional experience, and I don't know when the last time I'll ever go there is. It depends on how long we live, of course. This appears to be the last time Jesus would ever be in Nazareth. It appears to be that way. Picture in your mind the emotional moment that it must have been as they went to Nazareth. Thirty-five miles, they walked, sandals, a couple of bags over the back, planning to probably stay there a few days and so forth. And as they were walking along, and they had to walk up this hill, and probably was a trail there in that time, a defined kind of way that people would get up there from the lowlands there. And his disciples were following him in the background more or less, It says they followed him and he was probably thinking about what he was going to see there in Nazareth. Joseph, his father, was likely on his mind as he went up there. He had worked with his father all of his growing up years, over 30 years. Joseph seems to be out of the picture at this point in history. We don't hear anything more about him after the birth narrative. And it's not that possibly he died. We don't know for sure possibly he died. And Mary was raising the family on her own with Jesus, the senior person in the family being involved in that. But he probably thought about Joseph. He probably thought about his mother, Mary, as well. Uh, We always have a positive picture of who she was in the Scripture. He loved her, but she wasn't perfect. She was a sinner like everybody else. And I could imagine, though, that he would love her and think about her as he was going up the hill to Nazareth. Perhaps she would be there. Couldn't always tell ahead of time. Um, It's possible some of them could have moved away, but it seems from the text that pretty much everybody was there. As he went up the hill, I'm sure he was thinking about his brothers and sisters. He had the four brothers there that are mentioned, and at least two sisters, maybe more. So he's probably thinking about family, his kin, and all of that. Mixed feelings. He was always... The perfect child, Jesus was. And his brothers and sisters obviously wouldn't be. But whether that created any kind of contention, we don't know. But we know that there was some contention mentioned earlier. So there are about 400 people in the village. And I'm sure he was thinking about the people in the village. Their neighbors, the people they worked with, the people they, they sold woodworks or stonework to. The word for carpenter can mean that also, someone who works in stone. And all those things would have been on his mind as he was going up the hill. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine that? Just think about that. As he comes up the hill, and they crest the hill, you see a few stone houses, probably kind of down in a depression because there's water in the depression at the top of the hill. And then there was a synagogue there. And he'd been in the synagogue many times growing up as a kid in Nazareth. And that was really the place quote unquote of worship. It was not a place for sacrifice. The synagogue, the synagogue system came about later after the New Testament, but after the Old Testament, but it was a it was a place for people to be taught. It was a teaching place, a teaching place, really. And clearly Jesus would have had been there before. And by the way, if you go there today, they believe they have found it and excavated it and the picture is in the back of your little thing too. Part of it has been added on to later or Evidently, some of it was destroyed at some point, but the base parts are part of the original synagogue there. Now we come to verse 2. Verse 2. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished. Now, take note of that word. You've seen it before. Seen it before when the people were hearing his teaching in uh, northern Galilee, Capernaum. They were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? He's suddenly teaching in the synagogue and being viewed somewhat like a rabbi as he is there. Uh, I don't know how that came to be, if he just got up and, and... began to teach her. they asked him to perhaps he was in town they all knew him they'd heard about the things that had been going on the miracles and so forth and it would be within reason to think that they would perhaps ask him there probably his father wasn't there but his mother was there she wouldn't say much in the synagogue obviously that was a place where the women did not speak necessarily but the men did But how he teaches in the synagogue here speaks about the fact that he had divine understanding that was different than anybody else. The word astonished here is a word used a couple of times earlier in the Gospel of Mark about the people when they saw him teach, and they were astonished. They were they marveled that it's another word you can use to translate that. They marveled at his teaching. They were overwhelmed with it. They couldn't totally grasp how this guy could come as a carpenter, perhaps, whatever, and, and, and teach in this way and so lucid too. Well, let me tell you, when you're in seminary, they try to teach you how to teach or preach in a lucid kind of way. It's not as easy as you might think. And you really have to have the hand of God upon you to do the right kind of job here. So How are such mighty works being done by his hand? They heard about the miracles that he had done down there. They couldn't understand. This is Jesus from right in our our area. A few more people than are in this room were there, actually. And how could it be that he was the one that did the miracles, and he was the one that taught this way, and he was the one that was such an amazing teacher? Then, in verse 3, we come now to verse 3. A question was asked. It says at the beginning of verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter? Is not this the carpenter? It's it's thought that this may actually be a term or a statement of disdain about Jesus' teaching. They recognized him as a carpenter, and they recognized him as the son of Mary, and um, mentioned. Joseph is not mentioned here. He's mentioned in one of, in the other account, but he's not mentioned here. It, it may have been that there's sort of a lingering idea of the fact that he may have been the illegitimate child of Mary. So it may be a disdain kind of situation to thinking about who Jesus was. Is not this the guy who used to make stuff for us and uh, make bricks and build walls and do work on wood and put things together. Not a lot of wood there. Lots of rocks there, I'll guarantee you that. We're reminded later in John 1.46, it says Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come from Nazareth? So Nazareth wasn't necessarily the best place to be from. I wouldn't want to identify it with any other towns around Gig Harbor because I might (laughs) offend somebody but... (laughs) It wasn't the grass it wasn't the best place to be from. It was the other side of the tracks. I've read where Roman soldiers were there at time and that it always did not have a good sign with it too. Nothing good can come from Nazareth. it was said in John 1. So Christ was a carpenter. By the way, why was Christ a carpenter? I mean, you say, well, his father was a carpenter, but you know God is sovereign in all of that. Why did he become a carpenter? Why was it in God's plan that Jesus would become a carpenter? There was um, a book written some many many years ago, and I read a little bit about that, why Jesus was a carpenter. And of course, he he brings it around to the point that you know, keep in mind that the Christ was part of the creation of the universe and creation of the world and creation of everything that's in it, and the seas and the land and all the animals. And would it only be fitting for him to be a carpenter who would create things? Worked with his hands, a common man, an ordinary man, nothing special, unusual, really, except that he was God. God is a builder, we know that. Talks about, I will build my church, Jesus said. Good job, be a carpenter, in preparation for something like that. He, knowed, he knows how to fashion things. He knows how to fashion you. And he knows how to fashion me. And he knows how to fashion everybody you know. God is infinitely powerful and creative. So there's possibly a little lesson for us right in the midst of all of that. But as we look in verse 3, it says, is this not the carpenter? But also in the rest of the verse, it says, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and are not his sisters, plural, here with us. Probably a comment of disdain about who Jesus was. Once again, maybe referring to the fact that still the, the thought about Jesus being born as an illegitimate child may have been there, doesn't say that here but that certainly was there in the early parts of the birth narrative. His brothers are uh, four of them there, and um, all good names. Um, kind of interesting to see them named there. We don't have the sisters' names, but they're in the plural, so we don't know how many, but there was a good-sized family, normal-sized family, really, in that day and age and the sisters were there with us, which would imply that they probably were there even then when Jesus came there. We could say some of them may have gone away. We know that at some points they went down to Capernaum. They went even when his ministry started earlier, and they um, kind of thought Jesus was crazy. They tried to do a quote-unquote family intervention there. But he wasn't crazy, he was the Messiah. So, by the way, um, the list of the six siblings has destroyed the Catholic doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Jesus. Just a a little side point there. Perpetual virginity of Jesus means only Jesus was um, born, but some people say, then they dismiss that by saying, well, maybe these were cousins. Maybe these are cousins, but that doesn't seem to be clearly at all what it's saying here in the text. That is a doctrine that comes outside of scripture and is fallacious for sure. So, when you look at this, here they are. the Brothers and sisters were there and uh, he was the son of Mary. People recognized him as that. And notice what it says in the last part of verse 3. Just take note of verse 3, the last few words. And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Now why would they take offense at him? Skandalismai is the Greek word for offense there. And um, you can kind of get the English word scandal from that if you think about it just a little bit. Um, and scandalon is really a, a stone that is used to erect something. So it's interesting, he was the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, wasn't he? Psalm 118 verse 22 says the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And of course that's referring to Christ. They seem to be rejecting him here because they are taking offense at who Jesus was. Like I said this is about unbelief in this little section here. About unbelief. But at the same time, his teaching was amazing, and since early on, it says in Mark chapter 1 and verse 22, they were amazed, there's that word again, scandalizomai, at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority, and not as the scribes, not as the scribes. It was very different how Jesus taught, unique, unique. They were amazed at a couple of things, I think, as you look at this. What they were kind of amazed is at was, first of all, the source of the teaching. Where did Christ's knowledge come from? That was a question that they had. Where did it come from? That was amazing. The character of his wisdom was not like the scribes and the Pharisees. It was unique. It was different. You would spot it in the night like a lighthouse along the shore. The significance of his power was also amazing to them because he had thrown the demons out, of which there were thousands of them, of the demoniac on the other side of Sea of Galilee, just in chapter 5. And um, he had power to raise the little dead girl that was Jarius' daughter in chapter 5 also, we saw last week, and power to heal a woman who had... uh, an issue of blood, a hemorrhage for 12 years. It was a chronic situation that just wouldn't go away. And he healed her. Without even looking at her, she just came up and touched his robe and she was healed there. So the majesty of his person also is part of all of this, I think. So why were they upset? Now I want you to think about this for a moment. They're going to put your thinking cap on. <laughs> why were they upset? He came from Nazareth. Was it just the fact that he was a carpenter and he was teaching in this sense? I think it's more than that. Obviously, that may have been part of it. He was a local boy, but how could a local boy get to be like this? Well, let me say, first of all, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, we find another visit that Jesus took to Nazareth. believe that this is actually an earlier visit, it would be the first visit back, and then the one we're looking at today is the second visit back, but the one in Luke 4 was one that he took probably around a year ago, if we're right. Around a year ago. And it's important that you understand this, because this is big. This is important. This affects us. So Luke chapter 4... Verse 16, just kind of follow along with me there, or just listen is fine. It says that he, that would be Jesus, came to Nazareth when he had been brought, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath. This is probably about a year earlier, remember, and he stood up to read. That was a normal way to to do the reading in the the synagogue there. It was on the Sabbath, it was on Saturday there, so he was there for a few days, probably there for a few days here in the case we're looking at today in, in Mark 6. Verse 17 says, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to them. So they handed him Isaiah's scroll, some 66 chapters as we know it today. And he opened and found the place where it was written. And I'm reading from Luke 4.18, which is actually in um, Isaiah 61. But you don't have to turn there. Just read here Luke 4.18. And this is what he read out of Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me, by the way the idea of anointing is the idea of the Messiah, he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he has sent me to proclaim the release of the captives, and recover the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. So he finished his quote there, And he closed the book it says in verse 20 and he gave it back to the attendant who was there in the synagogue and then he sat down and the eyes of everybody was on him it says there in verse 20. They were looking at him. What's he saying? Verse 21 says he began to say to them today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now you know those verses that he read earlier there were really a classic picture of what the Messiah would be like what the Messiah would deal. He was anointed, he would heal, he would teach, he would set free the oppressed and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the coming of God, the, the, the fulfillment of the kingdom, and all of those kinds of things. He was saying that this is about the Messiah, and then now in verse 21 he says, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I am here, I am the Messiah. Verse 22 says, all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So this is in the synagogue there in in, uh, Nazareth. This is the first visit about a year prior to where we are in Mark. And he reads these verses and And the verse is about the coming of the Messiah and he says, okay, I'm it. You're looking at him. You're looking at him. So he's telling these villagers who pretty much all of them knew him, I am the Messiah. I am the Messiah. And what did they say? What did they say? They spoke well of him. They spoke well of him. It doesn't appear that they're upset at this point here. But now we come down to verse 23. So notice there's a change place. Change of uh, things here in this place now in verse 23. And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. In other words, he was kind of reading their mind and telling them, um, This is what you're thinking. You know, Uh, you speak well of yourself, you can heal yourself, and, and you did all these miracles here. Do those here, also in Nazareth, like you did down in Capernaum. Verse 24, he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you, in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over the land. Now stop there just for a moment. He's telling telling a little story from the Old Testament, which they pretty well knew. And um, he said there were a lot of widows in Israel at that time. Days of Elijah, he was one of the Old Testament prophets there, Elijah and Elisha. The sky was shut up, it was a bad time in Israel, and uh, it hadn't uh, rained there, shut up, Has hadn't rained there in three and a half years. And there was famine all over the place, and verse 26 says, yet Elijah sent was sent, none, excuse me, verse 26, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them. In other words, none of the widows of Israel. Elijah wasn't sent to the widows of Israel, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow there. In other words, that's the story of the widow of Zarephath and how Elijah provided for her. She was probably a Gentile. A Gentile. You get the picture? The Jews were not being blessed in that story, but the Gentiles are. There's a time of unbelief In Israel, actually. And now verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. Now he goes on to Elisha. He's the next one on the list there in those two prophets. A lot of lepers. Leprosy was really a bad thing. You get that. You don't really get over it. So it says, in the time of Elisha the prophet, in verse 27, and none of them was cleansed. All the lepers, none of them were cleansed in that period of time. Nothing would work for them but only Naaman the Syrian. Naaman the Syrian. So that's kind of fighting words. God only took care of these who were Gentiles, but not the Jews. And Jesus is saying that. Do you get the picture? Do you get the picture? Pay attention now. Verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were Speaking well of him? No, it's not what it says. Filled with rage, they were filled with rage, and they heard when as they heard these things, and they got up and they drove him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which this city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. They were mad. This was a year before the situation in Mark chapter 6. You get the picture? They're mad as hops a year earlier. By the way, there is a cliff there. In the front of your bulletin has a picture f- taken from the cliff looking out towards the valley, so it's a pretty high cliff. I think that um, I was there the first time I went there and um, nobody threw me over the hill, but I looked over the edge and uh, you could see it was really a place you didn't want to get thrown over. It wasn't like a deep drop, but you surely certainly would get banged up and perhaps even die. And it was not a place easy to get to. Uh, I understand that it's from the city of Nazareth, probably a, a couple of hours walk, but it's up on top of that hill there, and which is a substantial place, and it took a little while to get there. But they wanted to, they tried to throw him off the cliff. But it says in verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went his way. You know, it wasn't Christ's time yet to die. It wasn't his time yet to be... Um, mistreated, he went his way. Nothing could stop that, but it was getting closer. So what's the point here? What's the point of this text that helps us with our text in Mark chapter 6? What this does is it's saying to us that the widow of Zarephath and Naaman, the Syrian general, somewhat of a terrorist, I understand too, you could say, uh, they were shown grace and Israel was not because Israel was not paying attention to God. They weren't walking with God. And so God shows grace to the Gentiles. Isn't that what happens in the New Testament church when we see Acts chapter 2? It's grace upon the Gentiles, of course, as well as Jews too, any who believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, it says. In the New Testament, it's whether you're Jew or Gentile. That was the Great Commission later on. Go therefore into all the world Preaching the gospel, both in the area of Jerusalem and in the far off places of the world. But they're they're upset as they hear this too. And I think that they they have remembered that. And um, it was a a difficult time. So now it's a year later in Mark chapter 6. We're back to Mark chapter 6 for a moment here. Um, And and really, what's happening in Mark chapter 6 is Nazareth is being given a second chance. Lord Jesus is a God of second chances. Praise God. I know that if he were not, none of us would be here. Zero. God is gracious, but there is an end to his grace in some places when we spurn it. And unbelief is that thing that is like that. And it's coming hard now in Nazareth. He was giving him a second chance, really, at grace now, And his 12 disciples are watching all of this. there in the background, and you must have wondered, what are they going to do with him, throw him off the cliff? They didn't seem to lift a hand to do anything about it, as far as we know. And um, did the family itself come to his defenses? His family, his brothers and sisters, and, and maybe Mary, did they come to his defenses at all? No, it doesn't appear that they did. But was it because he was a carpenter that was the problem? No. Maimonides, who's a a Jewish scholar from from the Middle Ages, he says this about that. He says, The great wise men of Israel were some of them hewers of wood and drawers of water. And then he goes on to list a big, long list of just ordinary daily jobs. But they were the really key people. So I don't think the carpenter was the big issue there at all because of that. So it does not seem that was the issue. But it says here, that they were taking offense at him in verse 4. Taking offense at him. Offense is the idea of contempt. They didn't like. That's another way you could uh, describe it. It was a disapproval. It was scorn of who Jesus was. Disdain and all of that. They They were not happy with him. And they perhaps, I think it's very likely, they remembered exactly what happened a year before. I think you'd remember if something like that happened and they tried to throw this... Jesus, one of their own people over a cliff. Well, it's a good time to just ask, what's your attitude? What's your attitude toward other believers? What about other believers who have been blessed? An attitude of disdain, upset, concern. What about unbelievers who, for some reason, seem to be getting ahead in the world and so forth, and you're not? and you're on the bottom of the barrel, what is your attitude toward that? Or to people who have done you wrong in some way, shape, or form, what's your attitude? They definitely had a problem here. And does it speak to your own attitude, your own jealousies, your own feelings about things? So it really was a lesson here as I said in the beginning here about Christ and the wrong attitude. Now we come to lesson two. Lesson two here is the beginning of verse four. In lesson two, we see that unbelief restricts the blessings of Christ. It does. And this is a simple way of saying it restricts the blessings of Christ. Here we'll see this. Saw it already in the Luke chapter, but it really comes to a fruition here. And Jesus said to them that is to this. Crowd there, and keep in mind they're not throwing him off the cliff here. This is, uh, this is yet in the synagogue. He said to them, "A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household." It was a common saying. It's what We call it a truism. It's a truism, and uh, I, I know as a pastor, and going back to my own hometown, I, people don't look at me as something special kind of wonder why I'm a pastor. Maybe some of them. I haven't had that kind of treatment that Jesus had. I don't think very many of us have. But sometimes it can happen in your own family. Even among your relatives. Those people who get saved and they're the only ones saved in a family are looked down upon by the relatives. Isn't that true? I know that you've probably experienced that. So for Jesus, his country failed him. His hometown failed him, and his family failed him. He's on the short end of the stick here. It's often hardest to witness to people who are your own family members, and they're the ones who often have the heaviest burden for, but they tend to keep you at a distance sometimes. Not everybody, and if they don't, praise God for that. It's a call for us to go to prayer. For our own children, call for us to go to prayer, who may reject us, Remember that Christ is the one who calls, Christ is the one who opens the door, Christ is the one through his Holy Spirit that brings new life to the person, and there's nothing that you can do to manipulate it, but you are to give the gospel and faithfully love and reach out to them. Verse 5, okay, now verse 5. Unbelief restricts the blessings of Christ. We're going to see that here in verse 5, especially in 6. And he could do no mighty works there. He was able to do mighty works in Capernaum, which we've been to recently. And Gadara, wow, he did mighty works there. Thousands of demons ended up going into the pigs. But not here, not in Nazareth, not in his hometown, not in the city on the hill. Nothing, zilch, zero pretty much. The Greek word for miracles is a kind of a word that has the idea of mighty works. Mighty works here would be dunamis, from which we get the word uh, dynamite. We always use that term because that kind of exp- explains something to us we understand. They're powerful. His miracles were powerful there, very powerful but miracles are really not something that just sort of happens slowly. They sort of get well slowly. The kind of miracles Jesus did were instant every, in every case. No human explanation is what a miracle You can't explain it in any kind of human or scientific way. But they were there to validate and to confirm who Jesus was, to authenticate who he was, and later on for the apostles also. You can read about that in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great of a salvation? Which was first, and then it goes on to talk about the miracles and so forth there. They were there to authenticate that, not just so that people would get well. So unbelief was very, very strong here in Nazareth. It's sad. It was his hometown. He couldn't do mighty works, even in his own city, with his own family and friends around. When we don't believe God's obvious workings, his truth, his word, then we end up living on the short end of the stick and trying to work it out on our own. We have to believe God. We have to trust him. They didn't want to do that. They didn't want to accept even what the Old Testament said. They brushed it off And so the result was they would be living thereafter in the driest desert you could imagine, spiritually speaking, in the driest pile of rocks in northern Northern Israel, which would be, of course, Nazareth, which is a big, big mountain there. They had rejected him on the grounds of, really, their own unbelief, their own unbelief. Not on the grounds of Scripture, not on the grounds of anything Jesus did, Are you struggling with unbelief? That's the question I ask you. There are times when we we can be tempted to do that, to struggle with unbelief. Is your life dry? Is it because of unbelief? Is it affected by that? I can only tell you to pray. But it does say in that verse, in verse 5, it says, while he could do no mighty works there, He's all powerful, he could do anything he wanted, but evidently he didn't feel like it was worthwhile. It says, except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. There were some people of faith there. There were some people who did want to follow. And probably just a few. It speaks of no major miracles. It just makes a brief statement here. Um, Just a few people came and they were healed. I don't know if they had just a cold or a sore throat or whatever. It doesn't say... But it was, it was something. And it was a miracle. It was a miracle, but it wasn't so dramatic as some of the other ones he had done, like healing the woman with, a, with, the, with the history of a hemorrhage for 12 years or raising a dead girl who was 12 years old, who stood up immediately. But God always has a remnant, doesn't he? He's got a remnant. And there was a remnant of a few people in that village he was able to do some ministry with in a very quiet concealed kind of way which he did a lot of his miracles in. And then in verse 6 we come to verse 6 it says and he marveled because of their unbelief. He marveled at it. That's that word again it's, it's almost like the word amaze there. It's, it's hard to believe. Even in, even in his own heart it was astounding to him that they had rejected him. He had read the text about being the Messiah and said I'm here. They turned him down. And we always have to ask ourselves about those who we witness to, are those that we witness to so hard-hearted they're kind of in the same place as the people of Nazareth? Sometimes they are. Only God knows. The door was closed. The door was locked. The door was double-bolted, and the people would not let him in. Do you have preconceived emotions about who Jesus is? Maybe he's a good teacher, but not God. Keep in mind, he's, he'd be a rotten teacher if he said he was a teacher because he did miracles that were far beyond all of that. Far beyond all of that. Well, we are warned in all of this. Hebrews 3 and verse 12. That's a good verse to put down. Hebrews 3, 12. Take care, brethren, it says there, that there not be in any of you an evil evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God unbelieving verse 13 but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened in the deceitfulness of sin there's coming a day when there's coming the judgment of Christ and he's going to return it's going to be too late then it's going to be too late then While it's still called today, turn to him. Put your faith in him. Repent of your sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And then in Hebrews 3.14 it says, For we have become partakers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance, the very beginnings of it, firm until the end, while it is said, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as when they provoke me. Quoting again from the Old Testament. So, uh, don't harden your hearts. It's possible for us to harden our hearts when we know God is leading us in a particular direction. It's possible to that. And verse 16, for who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all of those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses, he's referring to the Exodus there, they're the one that provoked God. And with whom was he angry for 40 years? God was angry with the Jews for 40 years because they didn't want to believe him? Was it not with those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And as you know, the, 40, the people, 600,000 men and then women and children on top of that, that came out of Egypt for 40 years, they were in the desert. God provided for them. The manna and all of that and protected them, but he did not take them into the land because they did not really trust God fully. So they died there in the desert 40 years later. And it was the next generation that came in. Even Moses didn't get to go in, but Joshua took them in. He didn't do many miracles here because of unbelief, apostia, is the word pistis, is the word for faith. Awe on the front of it means no faith, unbelief, faithlessness, disbelief. They didn't have any faith. It was much different than people who talk about the word of faith movement. They've got a problem with that particular movement, also a very serious one. As they say if something doesn't happen, when you pray for it, you don't have enough faith. We are given enough to do what we need to do with it, and that's enough. So it says, he marveled at them. It's another it's a word that means to wonder, to admire sometimes, or to marvel. It kind of can have both sides. In this case, he's marveling at their unbelief, the emphasis in the negative here, in the negative. Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And it's interesting that there's a lot of things we can marvel at in the world. But it never says that Jesus ever marveled at art or architecture or things that men have built or the creation, the ocean, the sky, the trees, the beauty of the land. He never marveled at any of those things. The only two things he did really marvel at was at those who had faith and those who had, say it, unbelief. He marveled at that unbelief. Which one is he marveling at in you? The day of salvation is now. Do not tarry. This is his last visit to Nazareth. It's the second and last to his hometown. It was a bitter one. It was a bitter one, but um, his family didn't come to the rescue. His Jewish friends, his relatives didn't come. They tried to throw him over a cliff. But it didn't work. It wasn't time yet because it says in the last phrase of verse 6, it says, he went about among the villages teaching. In other words, he was going around now, some translations say. He, he simply left, took the 12 with him. They had learned a lesson that they needed to hear and understand that was like no lesson you could ever imagine. And they, they all left and never to visit Nazareth again as far as we know as far as we know. He would go, and he would eventually go to Jerusalem. It was a little while yet, but it was getting close to that time. But how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I'd like to close with just a couple of verses from Romans 10. It says, um, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent just as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. I hope that's where all of you are. If you struggle with any of that, I'll be in the back. Afterwards, I love to talk with you, pray with you if need be. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. This is a dark text in some ways but it's a very necessary text for the disciples it's a very necessary text for us because we may be living in the shadow of unbelief. I don't know the hearts of people you do we want to be we want to be those who believe we want to be those who believe and want to share that message and carry it on to the generations that are yet to come we pray in Jesus name. Amen